This is Paul Axton, and in this podcast, Sharon and I discuss Richard Rohr, and Sharon especially talks about Rohr's attractiveness to a generation disaffected from the church and evangelicalism, and the particular attraction that he holds and the difference that he makes, I think, for a upcoming generation. And so here's the uh, discussion between Sharon and I on Richard Rohr. Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is uh, Paul Axton, and today I'm here with Sharon, and today Sharon and I are going to discuss Richard Rohr. Uh, Sharon has been having me read The Universal Christ. I think she's found Richard Rohr very important and compelling, and I think she's not unusual. Rohr seems to be playing a key role for a lot of people, maybe disaffected from the church, maybe, as Sharon has said, sad Christians. Why did you say sad Christians? What I mean by sad Christianity is a Christianity that is unhealthy, a Christianity that is harmful, a Christianity that is simply sad. And that's not a term unique to me. That is a term stolen from Richard Rohr. I don't think he uses the word sad, and he doesn't limit it to Christianity. What Richard Rohr calls it is an unhealthy religion. For our context, since we are working in the American context, it would be Christianity. And in my own experience, I can see how an unhealthy religion is simply a sad religion. That people who are operating in this mindset, a just a cyclical violence, they are sad people. And I know that because I've experienced it, because I have been in a, a systematically violent worldview where it's just sad. And let's define the term violent. I think that that's the, the thing that I see in Roar that I've seen in many others, that a nonviolent Christianity, we often can make that too simple, but violence, of course, is any kind of oppression, any kind of coercion. In Paul's formula that we would do evil, that good may abound, is a form of violence. So Mm -hmm. is that what you're thinking when... Any violence is imposing your own agenda upon something else that doesn't benefit the other. There is a healthy relationship where you can give and take. So we can have a healthy relationship with the soil where the soil produces fruit and we take the fruit and it's the soil's gift to us. And in return, we take care of the soil. We take care of the land. But that's not a relationship we have with the soil. We have a violent relationship with the soil. And we see the repercussions of that in the Amazon where the Amazon is being cleared to produce mass crops and to produce agriculture, animal agriculture, wiping out the soil. And that is violence. To compare our relationship with the land is an easy way to say how we are violent because it doesn't feel as personal. It is deeply personal and it is deeply personal for myself, but if we cannot have a relationship with the soil, how can we have a relationship with the butterfly? How can we have a relationship with the bird? How can we have a relationship with the animal? How can we have the relationship with the other human? How can we have the relationship with ourselves? How can we have the relationship with God, whatever God is? And that is also from Richard Rohr, and I'm pretty sure it's from the Universal Christ, where he talks about this relationship. And so if you had to describe, then Rohr is playing this kind of key role 
what is it you like about Roar? What Roar has done for me, and perhaps what he has done for others, is he has given permission to leave the violence. He has given permission that it is okay to question this, and it is okay to leave this. That we don't have to operate in this system, because what's given in Christianity is that you don't have the option to question things. Because if you question things, you're going straight to hell, and nobody wants to go to hell. And this isn't necessarily a cognitive thing that people are thinking that I was thinking, but in hindsight, I can see how fear dictated me refusing to question my worldview. Because if I question my worldview, then I'm going to go to hell, and but, I can't have that. Yeah, I think that there, they, there is this kind of a constraint that's put on people, very often a spoken constraint, but maybe it's an unspoken, that these are the boundaries, and you, you cannot cross these boundaries. I've noticed that, you know, there's been several defections of prominent pop culture Christians. The, the reasons they're describing their departure are actually fairly simple questions. It's like, yes. oh, for the first time, they it occurred to them that, oh, there seem to be contradictions in the Bible. It seems like that the typical portrayal of God is actually quite evil. Right. And since we've been... I don't want to use the brainwash, but I want to use the word so ingrained. And the authority is God itself, whatever God is. We don't even know what God is, but we are creating this boundary. I think that song, the white, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy, beautifully and briefly sums up exactly what we do. That, But we make his love too narrow by false limits of our own, and we magnify God's strictness with a zeal he cannot own. I don't like to use he for God, so I take that back. They cannot own. As I was reading through Roar, I found affirmation, actually, for a lot of things. I, I had never read him, and so in a way I felt I had met a kindred spirit. Right, right. <laughs> you felt less alone. Yeah, and one of the things that he's describing that I, I just keep saying over and over again in different ways and that is that I think that what we do have in Christ is a God that has come to us in an incarnate form, which, well, well, of course, we all know that. But I think our tendency is, in fact, to imagine that we have access to God in his apophatic, absolute transcendence, mm -hmm. as if we can transport ourselves beyond. And so a lot of... Uh, Christianity, evangelical Christianity, imputed righteousness, you know, the inerrancy of the Bible, the picture of going to heaven when you die. Well, what all of that is, is really drawing a, an, an empty center for the here and now. Mm -hmm. That what's happening here and now is in some way delayed or waiting or unimportant. But what I think the significance of the incarnate Christ is that, well, no, creation is the place that God reveals himself to us. And so we don't need to look outside. Whether we state it that way or not, I think that's the impetus, that we in some way would look outside of our situation, imagine putting off the body, putting right. off human desire, putting yeah. off as if we don't deal with those things in Christianity. He's, I think, that seemed to be the thing that resonated with me. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that and pick up on that. 
something that is, I mean, it's related to the subject, but not necessarily roar, is the other day I was sitting and thinking things that I do often, and I was thinking about I am and what is I am, and not even like thinking of Exodus or John, but just thinking about myself and like what am I. And then I came to this like realization. It's not unique. I know it's not a unique re realization, but for me in that moment, it was unique because it was the first time being connected where we cannot state what we are because that is to look outside of ourselves and point to ourselves. But we can only do that if we are outside of ourselves and we are never outside of ourselves. We are always in the present. But what we tend to do is try to escape ourselves and to look outside of ourselves and point at ourselves. So, I am blank, I am blank, I am whatever we want to say about ourselves. Rather than giving all these things, I realized, okay, well then what am I? And then I realized I am here, I am present, and that is all I can be. I cannot be any more or I cannot be any less. And then I started thinking about Exodus and how God says, I am who I am. I am what I am, and that God is present. And to me, it clicked that we can't point to what God is. So you and I, we were discussing yesterday, that's why I'm not comfortable with saying God is this, God is that, God is not this, God is not that. Because God themselves says, I am who I am. God okay. says, I am present. Mm -hmm. And maybe that's the, the tendency, is that if I can say definitively, well, then I own this thing. Exactly. That is why Western culture is falling apart. And it has been using the name Christianity to move the vehicle along. It's functioning. I mean, that's the ideology. Yeah, it's that, an ideology. That uh, may just be as disconnected from the religion of the New Testament as any other ideology. If you had to state it, and a little bit of this, you understand, I, I'm always, well, you know I'm always confused. But, uh, Same. <laughs> We're all confused. <laughs> Whoever says they know what's going on is lying to themselves and others. You know, I was gone out of this culture, and it's like I was dropped back into a culture that I was I, I was surprised at the nature of it. For 20 years absence, actually, I, I wasn't any longer familiar with either the Christianity or the, it sort of baffled me. And I don't know quite why that is, you know, that was it because I had changed that much, or I think it was partly both. But what is it, if you had to state it, that is definitively different? You've said, hey, there's something wrong. How have you seen a kind of correction, of course? For me, is just embracing that, hey, there's something wrong, is it. That we can say, I don't have the answers. You don't have the answers. None of us have the answers. But on the same breath, hey, I have some answers. You have some answers. We all have some answers. Let's join together where we can see clear patterns, where we can see hope, where we can see love. Let's look for that. And we can see these trends in Christianity. We can see it in Buddhism. We can see it in Hinduism. We can see it in all kinds of religions, all kinds of cultures where there is patterns of redemption. And what Roar does, I appreciate because he's not trying to colonize anyone. Mm -hmm. I don't want to be colonized and I don't want to colonize anybody else. I don't want to force my religion. I don't want to force my spirituality. 
on anybody else, and I sure as heck don't want anybody doing it to me, which is a giant leap for me, somebody who went to Bible college, to force my religion on other people because I wanted to be a missionary. I wanted to spiritually colonize people. That was my end objective in life. And maybe it's a misunderstanding of what even mission means. When we say mission, I think a lot of us get the picture of Billy Graham crusades. And I think that is accurate of perhaps it might not be as blatant. And yes, the intentions are pure. I'm not taking away from the intention. Yes, there can be good things. But for me, at the end of the day, it was about converting people to my religion. Yes, I wanted to help them in their struggles or whatever, but it's not my position to help somebody halfway across the world. How can I genuinely, truly help them whenever all I have is my Western version of Christianity. I think there's a kind of holism in Roar. When we think about even just the basic terms of salvation, well, what we're thinking is, oh, I get to go to heaven. What I think New Testament salvation is, is a very practical salvation, that people are sick and they need healing, that they're faced by a kind of destruction, often destruction they bring on themselves, but destructive forces. I think that what Rohr is depicting then is a kind of holism in which there is healing to be had in Christ. Yes. Describe that a little bit, because you're more familiar with Rohr than I am. I guess perhaps if we're going to talk about salvation first, we need to talk about sin and what sin is. And I really appreciate Rohr's understanding and description of what sin is because sin and hell is not something that God presses onto us, but rather sin and hell is literally just a natural result of living in a way that is disconnected from life itself. Sin is whenever we are disconnected from the flow. And that's Richard Rohr's word, the flow. That's kind of the word he uses for just to describe life, God, ultimate reality, because I don't even like using the word God because I feel like it's been way overused. I don't even know what we're talking about when we say God. Because if I come up to a person and I say, hey, do you believe in God? If they say yes or no, like that doesn't give me any information about what they believe. Or, hey, are you saved? Yeah, they saved from what? Like <laughs> saved from like drowning? Yeah. yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not drowning right now. Thank or you. even, are you a Christian? That's so arbitrary. Yeah. It tells us nothing. The documentary that recently came out that brought this home to me, that they did a, a documentary on the National Prayer Breakfast. Yeah, the family. The family. It's a, the, they're, all, they're using language, Jesus, Christian, prayer, that's simply empty yeah. of any, any content. Right. And, and so I, it's not helpful. Interestingly, we often identify that simply with a kind of right-wing evangelicalism. And I think that may be true of a lot of the people that have flowed into the, that organization. It's really a departure from any kind of definitive doctrine. What evangelicalism does, it does have a kind of empty center. And once you put something like they have, they've put power and influence at the center. That's their goal. Yes. That becomes the whole modus 
for the religion. Right, and so what is powerful, what is controlling? Money. It all boils back down to capitalism. It all boils back down to money. Because that is what controls things. Actually, I saw a thing on Facebook. Somebody that I knew, like, ten years ago, posted a picture, and in the caption it said, and remember, if it doesn't make money, it doesn't make sense. That exactly is, I don't want to say the only problem, but that is a large problem that is driving all other problems. So for me, it is absolutely necessary that capitalism falls. And I don't think it's unique to capitalism. You know, there's all kinds of systems that have been happening throughout human history that are just doing the same thing. That it's all revolving around power and oppressing and stealing from others. It's almost like basic human desire and need is in some way, in other words, uh, I think what capitalism does, it shapes our desire, but it shapes our desire, uh, I don't think it's unique in that, that is that there's always this, you know, an empty center of uh, uh, consumption, ultimately there's nothing there, that's the, the whole point of capitalism, it's an accumulation of excess, there's always an yes, excess. and that is also a huge problem, the quote-unquote abundance mindset, because it's not abundance, mm -hmm. it is theft. You don't need a billion dollars. You don't need a million dollars. You don't need a vacation home. You don't need six cars. What you need, food, connection, basic safety, and whenever there's a concentration of wealth, other people are stolen from. Other people don't have access to basic human needs. People don't have access to connection, they don't have access to health, they don't have access to mental health, they don't have access to shelter, they don't have access to food that is healthy and nourishing. If we're not going to talk about privilege, then we completely miss the point because it is all wrapped in privilege. Mm -hmm. This is the irony, I, th I think, that just to stand up and say that Christianity is anti-capitalist, or anti-racist or against the oppression of women there are many places where that would people would say well wait a minute that's not politically correct yes and what is happening in my experience is nobody wants to be called racist nobody wants to be called sexist and nobody is going to ever agree with you if you call them racist or if you call them sexist but whenever you address issues that are racist when you address issues that are homophobic, when you address issues that are sexist, when you address issues that are classist, and I think classist is really the key here, when you address issues that are ableist, people are hesitant because it questions their own privilege. And so this religion, this sad religion that is the law of our land, the law of our culture, it is saturated with privilege. And there's so many people who are suffering as a result. On both ends. Of yes, I absolutely think everyone loses in this circumstance. We have to work together. Everybody on both sides of the spectrum, the oppressed and the oppressor, must come together. Let's state some things that, that I was just surprised. Oh, well, Roar's doing Rene Girard. <laughs> there seems to be a pattern that many people are, first of all, redefining biblical atonement theory. Mm. He, he does that. He spends a good deal of time talking about, oh, well, what we've fallen into is a misunderstanding of the death of Christ. Yeah. His point, I think, is a point that many have recognized, that 
Now, he does not take it back to Anselm of Canterbury. That's fine. He takes it to John Cal. Well, no, he actually begins with Augustine, too, which I was surprised that is a good, he's a Franciscan, right? Right. <laughs> so he's not hesitant to critique his own tradition. Yes, which is important. Yeah. And so he is critiquing a Western understanding of the death of Christ. Tell us, then, his interpretation, his understanding of the meaning of atonement. I guess maybe for me and what I've learned from um, Rohr's understanding of the life and death and the redemption of Christ is that it is simply redemption. Who killed God? Man killed God. Man put God on a tree. God did not kill God. And he is working at it with a positive worldview where there is inherent goodness not inherent badness because what we've been given is that we are bad and we need saved rather than we are inherently good and we can channel that goodness let's channel that goodness that we all have access to and that is what he's talking about when he talks about there's christ in everyone that christ has revealed himself in or itself and everyone because everyone has inherent goodness but what happens is people become hurt. So we see these people who are just wicked and just do things that are just beyond fathomable. What happened to them? They were hurt. They are victims of a violent world. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they become violent themselves. If you look at serial killers, if you look at like what we dismiss as people who have no soul, who are completely gone, when we look at them and we look at their childhood, and we look at what happened to them, then we can have compassion for them and see, oh, the Christ is in them. But they have been disconnected from the Christ because they have been hurt so bad. And that is why I say a sad Christianity. Because whenever we are hurting others, it is as a reaction to us being hurt. The core, like if we want to change the world, to use Christian terms, we need to change ourselves. Spirituality in my definition, in my experience, which I don't want to put onto anybody else, spirituality is not about changing other people. It's about changing yourself and healing your own hurts and healing your own wounds so that you can forgive others who have hurt you. And whenever you have received forgiveness, you can't hate yourself. To give an example, like recently in my life, um, I've talked about it with you, and you actually were very present in my life during this time whenever I my best friend she came out and as gay and I just treated her terrible and then I come full circle and I realize like how much I've hurt her and she forgives me and you know this has been a long process and here we are now just a couple weeks ago she asked me to be in her wedding and it wasn't until she asked me to be in her wedding that I truly felt Forgiveness. Even though she had forgiven me a long time ago, I had never forgiven myself. And in that moment when I experienced such true unconditional love and true forgiveness, is like, how can I hate myself for something? How can I hold on to this anger towards myself for what I did to her, what I have done to others, whenever she forgives me? I can't. I can't hate myself and I can't hate others as a result because I have experienced forgiveness from her. So in that moment, uh, to use Roar's language, my friend 
was the Christ to me because my friend showed me forgiveness in a way that is unfathomable. And the, the, what it means to be forgiven is, I mean, that's Jesus' picture of it is that we only, we seem to experience that as we forgive. That it's a, the grace of God flows through us then only as we extend it to other people. Absolutely. And whenever Roar talks about the flow, and my understanding of Roar, which I can't put words in his mouth, that is exactly it. And that is also, he, this is an interesting thing he talked about in the universal crisis, the sin against the Holy Spirit. Did you get to that section? Remind me. So in Rohr's interpretation and Rohr's understanding of the sin against the Holy Spirit, which is something that has totally baffled me forever. Like I've always had this question of what is the unforgivable sin? And Rohr, he points the unforgivable sin to being not being able to receive forgiveness. When you are disconnected from the flow, when you are disconnected from the divine, that is the unforgivable sin because you cannot forgive yourself when you are disconnected from the flow. So it all comes down to forgiving ourselves and finding our own healing. And maybe, I mean, the name of this is the universal Christ. And so the picture is that God is at work in all places among all people and that we can name who God is in Christ and we need to recognize in Christ when we encounter him. And maybe a little bit, that's my own experience that I I think that you can, I think when I first went to Japan, I thought, oh, I'm going and taking something but actually I received something yeah. um, that I came to an understanding. And, and to my mind, that's the, the idea that there is the idea of, you know, a, a mission, but it's primarily one that Jesus calls his disciples not to, you know, go out in a kind of coercive, but that... Militant. Yes, militant. But we realize who Christ is, I think, in our encounter with other people, other religions, other places, and we understand better than, I believe, how Christ, in fact, can, he is universal, only in our ability then to, again, extend who who we are uh, to other people. If I had to ask you to critique Roar, is there anything about him that makes you uncomfortable? It's really hard to critique somebody who is so okay with being wrong. How can I look at what he's doing and say, oh no, you got it wrong? Because I'm not concerned with what other people are doing wrong. I'm more concerned about what I'm doing wrong. And I think that might be his point. So do I agree with every single point? No. But do I care? No. Like, it, for Roar, and I would say also for myself, the end objective is to become more loving, more embracing of other people, of ourselves, to widen our circle. And that is why Roar is valuable, because it is all about becoming kind. Which Harley is, you can't critique that. <laughs> yeah, how can you c- critique something that is based on 
Human goodness, human kindness. At the beginning of the book, uh, he used the word panentheist. Mm -hmm. He calls himself a panentheist. My understanding of a panentheist, you've said I've misunderstood. So let's okay. put that out there. That, in other words, a panentheist is a pantheist is saying that you know the cosmos is God. A panentheist says yes, the cosmos is God, but God also exists outside of the cosmos. So that the chair is God. The the dog is God. But you're saying that's not quite it. To me, whenever we talk like that, we're still doing the same system. We're still operating in a typical system that we have been given in the West. Everything has to be the same. And sameness doesn't equal... Uniformity doesn't equal unity. And I think that might be what is happening. I'm unsure. I feel very unqualified to talk about this, but I will do my best. So for me, when I look at this table, I don't see it as God, but I can see how God is in this table because I can see how this table, it came from a tree, and that tree, and it was in the ground, it was once a living thing that was contributing to our ecosystem. So this table is connected to me in a way that it was once in its original form, a tree, and now that its life has been over, hopefully it wasn't ended prematurely. The chances are it probably was because that's the world we live in. Most of the things in my house came to my house by dying prematurely. But in its form, naturally, it is serving a purpose that is beneficial for us. And at the end of its life, if it is disposed of properly, it's going to return back to the earth. This table is a very special table because we're sitting around our dining room table in the carpenter's house where every uh, Tuesday night we all gather for dinner. Actually, I, I bought this table. Uh, I, this is a side note. <laughs> and we're, see, we're appreciating the table and how the table rec brings us to connection. Mm. It's all about being connected for me at least. I don't know about Roar, I don't know about anybody else, mm -hmm. but for me it's all about connection. So this table, how does it connect us? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you said it You said it beautifully that, that there is a tendency, in other words, there is identity through difference in which, uh, in a kind of simplistic way, we say, well, I'm not that, and we identify ourselves negatively. Right. And I think that's what you get in a, in a lot of, at the present moment, the uh, anti-gay lesbian idea in a lot of, uh, well, that was the family, but I think it's also uh, in evangelicalism, that it becomes, uh, it centers then on the illicit sexual activity of a few. And isn't it ironic then that we keep hearing about those very people who have focused on that illicit sex falling into what they describe what they yeah and it comes back down to disconnection because these people who are obviously homosexual who have obviously repressed their desires and their needs because we are sexual beings and we have sexual needs and these people are obviously repressing it and so they hate in themselves their own homosexuality and so they hate in others who can embrace it and be joyful and so that's why I think the most rebellious thing any oppressed people can do is be joyful. Because that is what, in Paul's word, reaps burning coals on people's head. Because if you can exist in your own skin, no matter how much people hate it, and be joyful, and to embrace 
life and embrace Roar's word, the flow, that is rebellion. The other end of this, identity through difference, that's one mode. But then the end point of that logic is identity through difference is undone through sameness. And there are points, I don't think Roar has fallen into that. But in other words, the, the logic is still the same logic. Right. That you just, oh, well, then you just erase everything and you don't make distinctions. Right. And that, and that is why, that's why we have a hard time saying, oh, how can this table be connected to me? And how can my cats be connected to me? How can my dinner be connected to me? Oh, my dinner is connected to me because this was once a living being. Did this being go through suffering to get to where I'm at? And, you know, this is, of course, my vegan coming out. I am trying to connect all aspects of my life, no matter how small or big. So for me, the application of that is to have a nonviolent diet as best as I can, not saying that it's perfect because there absolutely is still violence involved in my diet. I do not buy, I do not grow all my own food. There's pesticides on my food that contaminates the water. I am not sure what people are getting paid to cultivate it. Like there's so many issues. My purpose in life is to do the best I can with what I have to cause no harm. For me, that is what embracing the Christ, the universal Christ means. The logic here is that uh, this is this has actually been recognized. This is this is the failure of western thought, but I think it's just the failure of human thought. You swing from intolerance of the other to an incapacity for any, in other words, this is the, the beauty of the New Testament. Paul does say there's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. But Paul is not obliterating maleness and femaleness. He's not obliterating ethnic categories. He's not obliterating marriage. There are identities. Wait, it's, marriage? What does marriage have to do with it? Because if there's no male nor female, in other words, Paul talks a lot in Corinthians about men and women and the integrity of marriage. Uh, but when you're talking about there's no male nor female, Jew nor Greek, that's Romans. That's not Corinthians. Well, so I, I, you're making bridges that I'm not seeing. Uh, in Corinthians, I think they've many people think they've heard what he said in Galatians. Actually, it's where it's at. That they think, oh, well, if there's no male nor female, there's no marriage. And so Corinthians, many people think, is speaking to what he's saying. In other words, it's balancing out what he said in Galatians. Oh, okay. So he is doing that for the purpose of people misunderstanding what he is saying in Romans, where he is talking about that. Okay. So perhaps maybe like, yes, there are differences, and it's okay, and we can still be connected. We don't have to have uniformity to have unity. Right, that's it. And, and so, that's where I was going with the connection thing, that we can still be connected to things without it being sameness. Yes. The two great worldviews would be identity through difference, and then you could class a whole group of worldviews, and then the other end of that would be identity through sameness. You could almost uh, link up world religions. Right. But in an ironic sense, those two things are part of the same logic. Perhaps it's a scale. It's not necessarily a this or that, 
but there is a scale. On the scale, there's two extremes, and we can, to make this more simple, we can talk about politics. There's the left wing and the right wing. They're doing the exact same thing. The exact same thing. And they're angry and like, but they're doing the same thing, and they're pitting against each other, but their wings is the same bird. Mm-hmm. It's operating in a dualistic mindset, but when you take a step back, you can see, oh, it's the they're operating in the same system. Let's make a third. Let's take a little bit from this, a little bit from that, and let's wed them together, and we have a third. And Rohr does that, and that is how he addresses dualism, which has been very important for me in understanding dualism and overcoming dualism. Mm-hmm. The law of three, where there is the left and the right, but they are not opposite. They are on a scale. And we are trying to come to the middle and find balance on this scale of just all things in life. I spent more than 20 years in Japan, and in that time, part of my engagement with it was with the Zen Buddhist philosophy. And so you might, you know, the immediate idea is, oh, well, Zen Buddhism is the opposite of, of a kind of bad Western thought. Right. But my point is, no, it's, in fact, they're all linked, and that's precisely what has happened in Zen Buddhist philosophy. So that you can trace the fascism in Japan with the rise of the Kyoto school primarily around a a man named Kitaro Nishida, who was, you know, you would think, well, here's this guy, he's just talking about meditation and oneness, and, and, but he's precisely the counterpart in Nazi Germany to Martin Heidegger, right. who is also then talking about the same things in very Western terms. And so fascism, national socialism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Christianity then gone bad, are, it, it turns out, in other words, I'm afraid in someone uh, that does not understand that the, the resolution to identity through difference is not Eastern religion. Right. Yeah, and so I think um, perhaps that's something valuable about Rohr is that he provides that for people who can look at this and say, okay, this is messed up, this is sick, we're all sick. He can look and say, yes, this is sick, but if we look within ourselves and when we look within our culture, there is redemption. And if you look into other cultures, you can see the sickness, and you can also see the health. And that's where Roar is very valuable in that he's not pushing this on anybody. And it's almost like Jesus. Jesus wasn't pushing his agenda on anybody, and that's actually what they wanted. They said, come on, like, get with the program. Like, please be front with us and, like, just wipe out these people. Wipe out our problems. Like, we know you're in the right, and, you know, Jesus, how can you say Jesus was not in the right. He's a peaceable guy. Mm-hmm. There is in uh, somebody like Martin Heidegger the idea that he came to a deep appreciation actually simultaneously with Zen Buddhist thought. And then he turns to the uh, National Socialism, uh, specifically Adolf Hitler, and he begins to talk about locatedness and worldview and the blood and soil of Germany a lot of this language people are still resonating with. In a sense, what Heidegger is doing, that he's creating a place, and this is you know, why he is embraced mm-hmm. by Adolf Hitler right. personally. Right. That, that it, and in 
Japan, this is what Zen Buddhist philosophy right. is doing. It's making a space, I think, for the worst evil. I mean, if there, ha if there was any evil that you can say, oh, the uh, fascism, Nazism, National Socialism, just from the genocide that flows out of that, this was it. And these two thinkers then coincide on this very similar form of thought. And so I think what you do find in the New Testament is that Christ is very much challenging mm -hmm. e evil. And challenging the system in which depend on evil to thrive. Yeah. And that is why he is such a threat. And that is why he was killed. And that is why whenever you and I talk about this with our friends, that's why they're no longer our friends. Because the thing that's described, once you say that, well, the oppression of the other or the identity through difference, and then you name that, whether it's misogyny, mm -hmm. whether it is racism, whether it's, you know, some form of classism, capitalism, I think all of those then are, are partaking of the same thing. And so I think part of the, the thing that one uh, cannot back down from is to say, well, there is real world evil, and we need to name that evil and describe it and not be that. I think that's what's happening in the New Testament. So I know like I'm talking with a lot of certainty, and I've talked with you like I've had like a very emotional day, so I'm feeling very fired up, so that's probably some of it. But I just want to disclaim that I don't think I have the answers, and I definitely don't think I have the answers for anybody else other than myself. And I think other people need to find the answers for themselves they're on their own, you know? And, like, perhaps we can learn from other people and there's value in that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not trying to push my agenda on anybody else. All I'm trying to do is cause less harm myself and whenever other people are being harmed, to stand in the way where I can. To do what Jesus did and become the middleman where when there is violence happening... I would prefer that violence to happen to me than somebody else. So I am not always, I don't do the best, but I am willing to talk about and um, discuss issues like racism and sexism and homophobia and ableism and classism because I would much rather take the brunt because I am a person of privilege than these people who are experiencing these things. I'm not saying I haven't caused harm. I'm not saying that I am not privileged. I'm not saying that I can somehow escape causing harm. I'm not doing this whole violent thing very well, is basically my disclaimer. <laughs> I think that partly what has happened as a result of a group of us who have had a similar experience is that we've realized a, a form of community that I've never experienced before, that in, in a sense there really is love to be had. And I think people very often miss out on that love. And so there is a place in which we're safe. There is a, a place in which we can come and give voice to our understanding and be shaped. And I think that that's the picture then of koinonia that mm -hmm. we can have. Mm -hmm. I agree. And the end goal, of course, is always going to be connection. So there is a lot of tension. There is a lot of argument. There is a lot of hurt and there is a lot of mess. But just because there is mess and hurt and pain present doesn't mean that there is a lack of connection. That we can hold both suffering and joy 
we can hold both of those things in our left and right hand and somewhere in the middle we exist in the present and we can wrestle with that tension we can, and jesus did that and we can do that sure it's been a wonderful conversation yes Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.